Okay, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be back uh, back in chapter 32, and we're going to, um, well, we're going to look at probably one of the most familiar passages in, in Genesis. This is the one that we've kind of been leading up to uh, as we've looked through Jacob's life. Uh, this shows us, this section shows us uh, when Jacob actually encounters God, he um, well, we've seen throughout Jacob's life that that God's been using people and circumstances to uh, to kind of push Jacob toward being a man of faith. Uh, all the all the I guess all the the suffering that he's endured. You know, you remember at, at Laban's hands, he's gone through twenty years of being cheated and robbed and, and all these kind of things. And, and and of course now we saw last time he, he has the dread of having to go back and face uh, face Esau and who is the one that he cheated all those years ago uh, and so God has used all of this to uh, to really to put Jacob's back against the wall we we kind of talked about that a little bit last time and we, we've kind of seen this played out over and over in the lives of the of the promised seed. Uh, if you remember through the lives of Abraham and through the life of Isaac, uh, we saw kind of this same this same narrative. And so uh, it, it, it isn't really anything new for us. And really, there's a tendency for us to read these historical accounts of the people of God uh, as just. I don't know history for for us to learn. You know, it's good information, and it's you know it's great for us to have all this knowledge. But really, it doesn't doesn't really apply to our daily life. You know, these Old Testament stories. Um, but the reality is, of course, you know this that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same way he protected his promise and and used all things to mold and grow his people uh, is, I mean, he still does the same things today. So even as uh, today, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are uh, you are a promise bearer of God. Paul tells us in Galatians that if you are in Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So. Because we're in Christ, it it is it's absolutely true that God works all things for the good of those who love Him and who are the called according to His purpose, and that's what Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight. And so, um, it's very important for us to understand even before we get going with uh, Jacob's encounter here. Uh, God has been using all of these circumstances, especially the bad ones, to push Jacob to the end of himself, so he would have nothing left to trust in but God. And and God has been doing this through it all. And what I want you to see more than anything is that that most of the circumstances that have that have grown Jacob are hard lessons. Hard lessons learned through being wronged, through facing pain, through facing the consequences of his own sin, his own actions. Um, I mean, if you remember way back in the beginning of all this, to be honest, Jacob brought all this on himself. I mean, it, it it was Jacob that didn't trust God's promise and instead, you know, thought he had to lie and cheat Esau to get the inheritance. It it was uh, it was the re- resulting wrath of Esau that made it necessary for Jacob to to get out of Dodge and and head to Laban's in the first place, where he encountered one who uh, who was a, a whole lot better trickster than he was. Uh, so even if the circumstances that you're facing are your own dang fault. I mean, you got to remember that that God uses all things for the good of those who love him. God is molding his people to 
to be to be more like Christ. And and I don't know about you, but when life is good and I don't have any worries or stresses, I I tend to I tend to wane in my trust. Uh, God usually has to teach me to trust in Him by by taking away all the other things that I trust in. So God has been doing exactly this in Jacob's life. If you uh, if you remember our last look in Genesis 32, uh, Jacob has come to uh, he's come to one of those points in his life. He he is terrified. We we saw that that God protected Jacob from Laban and, and, and sent him back to his father's house, commanded him to go back to Isaac's house. Um, but now. Uh, you know, there's a greater danger. Esau's coming. Uh, Esau is coming to see Jacob, and he's bringing 400 men with him. So, what we saw, we saw that Jacob understood this to mean Esau is coming to make good on his on his promise to kill him. Remember, that's the last thing that Jacob heard from Esau. Uh, and then we saw something that we have never seen before in the text of Genesis. Jacob humbles himself and prays. Uh, this is the first time in Genesis that we see Jacob praying like this. He he is a man that has, I mean, he's reached the end of his rope. He, he doesn't have any more schemes or plans that, that that's, that's going to get him out of this. He, he finally comes to the point where he realizes he can't, he can't do anything on his own. Uh, he reaches the end of himself and he cries out to God for for deliverance. I mean, his pride's broken. He admits to God that he is afraid. We saw that in his prayer in the text in 32 last week. Um, really, all he can do is put his hope in the promises that God has made, you know, to prosper him and to make his descendants as many as the sand of the seashore. He calls out on this God who promised. He said, you're the God that promised, that said to me, you know, I'll make your descendants as, as you know, numerous as the stars of heaven. And so, he has been brought to this point. God has has ordained and orchestrated all of the events of his life to bring him to right here. Uh, this is where God wants him. He has he's reached the place that God wants us all to be, completely and utterly humbled, completely and desperately dependent upon God alone. This is this is the heart that God accepts, and this is the the cry that God responds to. Jacob is he he's about to meet his creator. And so as we look at this this section Genesis 32, uh just make sure that we we kind of understand what's going on here. If if we are to be right with God and walking with God, uh changing the way we live and act is really just not good enough. Um, we have to be supernaturally changed by God himself and we have to we have to have an encounter an encounter with him and and that's what we're going to see jacob is jacob is now doing a whole lot better than he ever has before i mean if you followed with us through jacob's life he he has now become a man of humility and compassion he never was before uh he's now been pushed against the wall so much that he has been forced to put his hope in god's promises uh you know he instead of scheming to get there uh but but doing better and jacob is doing better it's just not enough. Jacob needs to be transformed, and only an encounter with God Himself is going to is going to do that. So let's start. We ended in verse twenty one last week. Let's start in verse twenty two, and read just to the uh, I guess the beginning of verse twenty four. We'll start off that right there. It says, "The same night he arose and took his two wives, 
his two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. Uh, remember, this is right after Jacob uh, prayed, uh, called out to God, humbled himself before God, and then we saw that he split up his you know, herds and sent droves toward Esau with a message, and now it says the same night he took uh, and separated himself from his from his immediate family jacob is uh he's preparing he's preparing for esau's coming he's he's already separated you know his flocks into two groups we remember that so one would survive if esau attacks and then we saw that he separated the droves with the gift for esau uh so now he sends his family away from him and i assume that this is to protect them from Esau as well. Jacob certainly doesn't want them to get killed along with himself if if Esau attacks, and that's really an assumption on my part. Uh, there are some that suggest that Jacob just wants to be alone to continue praying. Uh, really, the reasoning doesn't matter. The text is uh, going to great lengths to make it clear to us that Jacob is alone. He's absolutely alone. And when he, when this encounter with God happens, uh, he, the, the text wants us to know that this is not somebody hiding in the bush somewhere. This is, this is going to be an encounter with God. Jacob is utterly and totally alone. And this is when this quote unquote man shows up. The rest of verse 24 says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Later, of course, you know you've heard this. You've heard this story before. Uh, we're going to find out that this unidentified man is actually actually God. But Jacob doesn't realize this at the time. All he really knows is that someone's attacked him. Now, the whole ordeal is summed up in the last half of verse twenty-four. It says, "It says a man wrestled with him until the break of day." And really, that's that's it. But make sure you catch what it says. The text says. A man wrestled with him all night long. Now, think about what that means. Have, have you ever been in a fight uh, where, you know, you're kind of, you know, grappling and rolling around on the ground? Fights usually, you know, they usually start looking like a boxing match and end up just rolling around in the grass somewhere. Uh, this is what happened, and it went on all night long <clears throat> until the sun started coming up. Now, it's just half a verse. The man wrestled with him till the break of day. Really. But think about what that means. You can imagine the two men, you know, sweating and straining and, and gasping for breath and grabbing each other and trying to get the upper hand, you know, throwing one another to the ground as they you trying to get the other to submit. And I mean, it is it was probably an exhausting, uh, grueling uh, battle, a grueling wrestling match. Uh, Jacob, I mean, taken by surprise, he thought he was alone. He probably thinks this man has come to take his life. You know, he may even think that it's, you know, Esau has shown up, you know, who knows what he's thinking. So he's fighting with all that he can. You know, I'm sure he's fearing that this man's here to take his life. And, you know, just for your own little information, if if uh, it's something you may not have recognized from the pictures, you've seen the pictures of Jacob wrestling with God or the paintings and stuff. Like, Jacob is 97 years old at this time. So, you know, you got that picture of this muscular Jacob, you know, wrestling with this angel. You see the paintings and stuff. I mean, Jacob's an old guy. He's an old guy wrestling with God here. Uh, this is this is uh, it, the idea is that my it's not that it's not that mighty Jacob is just too strong for this man to uh, to uh, 
to conquer him, the next verse in verse 25 is going to begin by saying that the man saw that he couldn't prevail over Jacob. And of course, some people take that to mean that Jacob's just, you know, he's just too strong. The man, the man can't beat him. But if you take that whole verse in context, you're going to recognize that that's not what it's saying. So let's read it. Verse 25, it says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, the point is not that Jacob is, boy, he's just too powerful. What a strong 97-year-old guy. Uh, that's not the point. The point is that the man who who we know is God, we're going to find out that at the end of this chapter, he could have taken out Jacob at any point throughout the night. I mean, he touches Jacob's thigh and put his hip completely out of joint. With a touch, he put his hip out of joint. With a single touch, he defeated Jacob. The match is over. So the point is not that Jacob was so strong he prevailed. The point is that Jacob, though clearly faced with a superior, you know, wrestling partner, superior opponent, he refused to give up. He refused to submit. He refused to admit that he was not sufficient for the task. He what's amazing to me is not that Jacob lasted the whole night. What's amazing to me is that God allowed him to continue all night long. God could have simply touched Jacob at any point during the night. I mean, in fact, there really didn't even need to be a wrestling match. God could have descended upon him and killed him with a touch. He could have hobbled Jacob before the wrestling match even began. So, I mean, in fact, if you get down to it, he he really didn't even have to show up and touch him. He could have destroyed Jacob with a word. So in this wrestling match that you're seeing here, you're not seeing the inability of God to subdue Jacob or any human. You're, you're seeing the mercy of God in allowing this feeble human to struggle against him all night long without destroying him. I mean, isn't that a picture of God's work in the lives of of all mankind. I mean, it's certainly a picture of Jacob's life. God has continually striven with Jacob, even though Jacob's been fighting him every step of the way, it seems like. Jacob Jacob has been trying his whole life to do things his way and not trust in God's word to him. And over and over, God has striven with him and worked all things for his good. But, but man cannot prevail against God. The only reason sinful man is even allowed to struggle against God who created him is because the merciful God restrains his judgment and his wrath. He allows the wrestling match to continue all night long. And when it's clear that Jacob simply refuses to give up with a single touch, he removes all of Jacob's ability to fight, all of Jacob's ability to struggle. And here is the amazing thing to me. Even after the man, who we know as God, decimates Jacob's hip, removes his ability, Jacob still refuses to give in. In verse 26, he says, of course, you know this, he says, Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, there are there are a lot of theories as to why it's important you know, that the day was breaking. Uh, to be honest, we aren't exactly told as to why the mysterious man wanted the match to end before daybreak. Um, I tend to think that this was for Jacob's protection. Uh, the man came in the darkness, began the assault in the darkness. The wrestling match took place th- in the, throughout the darkness. Uh, remember, there's no street lights out in the middle of the middle of the the plane. So 
now the light was about to dawn and Jacob would see the man's face. Scripture tells us no one can look upon the face of God and live. So this had to end before the light came up for Jacob's benefit. Uh, but once again, you see Jacob's just stubbornness. He he clings to the man and refuses to let go. Now, make sure you don't misunderstand what's happening. Jacob is not clinging to the man in victory. He is clinging to him in utter defeat. Jacob can't walk. I mean, he can no longer walk, much less keep fighting. But at some point during all this, Jacob begins to realize who it is that he's wrestling. Uh, of course, we can't know for sure, but I would I would bet that it's when the single touch throws his hip out of joint. Uh, so get the picture here. Jacob now knows what's going on. He knows that he is utterly beaten, probably in extreme pain. He can't continue. His strength is no match for the Lord's. And now Jacob's persistence and his stubbornness changes. It changes from being self-reliant to clinging helplessly to the Lord. Now, make sure you understand this from the text. Jacob is not holding on to the Lord in victory. A lot of, a lot of, uh, uh, of devotions and things based on this text will, will say Jacob just refused to give up and he won the fight. And No, no, no. He, he's clinging to the Lord in absolute defeat. If he were to let go, he wouldn't win anything. He, he'd fall to the ground in a helpless, defeated pile, a lump of humanity that couldn't move. Uh, he is... He is no longer stubbornly trying to win in his own strength. Now he is refusing. He is stubbornly refusing to let go until he is blessed by another. He's refusing to let go and return to his self-reliance. He, he finally understands his weakness and his inability. It was made manifest to him by the Lord's power. And instead of continuing to trust in his own non-existent power, he now refuses to trust in anything other than the mercy of this man who has bested him. This we know it's the Lord, but this man who has bested him, he 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 he, he can only cling to him. We uh, what he had um, uh, previously tried to get by deceit and lying. Remember, he stole the blessing. He connived. He lied to get the blessing. Now, finally, he begs for it at the feet of God. Instead of scheming to find his way to it, instead of lying and cheating and and plotting and and doing all these things to, to get the blessing for himself, the only thing he can do now is cling to the Lord and beg for the blessing, beg for what he has tried to get his whole life. Uh, the picture, I mean, this picture teaches us, well, it teaches us several things. First, I think that this is the point that all of Jacob's life has been leading up to. God has been, God has been steering Jacob to right here through all of the trials, all of the successes, all of the tribulations, all of the sins that has brought, that has brought him to this point. Uh, this is the point to bring him to the end of himself, to bring him to the point where he encounters the power of God and recognizes his own desperate need. I mean, what a perfect picture of salvation in Christ. When we come to realize by the grace of God that we can't be righteous before him on our own. We realize that that we are we're not only powerless but we're wicked and deserve all that limit, limitless 
omnipotent power to rain down on us in judgment. And, and there's nothing we can do. The only option that we are left with is to cling to the Savior and plead for His mercy. We understand that there's no other option. He alone, His grace, and His mercy is our only hope. And, and we say with Jacob, you know, by the grace of God, I will not let you go. I'll cling to you for salvation, and I know that your blessing is the only place that it is to be found. I know that there is nothing else to hang on to. And just for uh, another point, just on another level, uh, this story always reminds me of the parable of the persistent widow that Jesus tells. It's found in Luke chapter 18. Uh, and Luke tells us that that uh, Jesus told the parable specifically to teach us to pray continually and not lose heart. You probably know the story. Uh, I mean, if not, you should go read Luke 18. I'm not going to read it right now. But the basic theme is that there's a widow that desires justice from a judge, and he refuses to give it. And so she continually pesters him and asks and asks and asks until he finally relents just because, you know, just because she's so persistent. And uh, uh, it's kind of strange to think about Jesus teaching about prayer from that story. But it always reminds me of this wrestling match. There are there are times in believers' lives when we when we have a need or we're longing to see God move in a particular situation or, or something like that, that we are to go to him and in a sense, this is not exactly exactly the best way to put it but in a sense we we wrestle with god uh, in that need when i mean think about it when's the last time that you kind of quote unquote wrestled with god in prayer throughout the night uh, when's the last time that you told god you know i'm not going to let you go until you bless me I, I i'm not going to relent from my prayers i will not relent from seeking your face until you move in this situation now of course Please balance that. I'm not. I'm not saying that you can force God to do something or anything like that. Uh, that that's not what it means at all, or anything like that. I'm saying that. I'm saying that the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. And you have not because you ask not. And Jesus told the story of the persistent widow specifically. He says so that we would pray and not lose heart. And so when it all boils down to it, this is where God wanted Jacob. This is what was supposed to happen. Jacob has been brought here through through the course of his life. The scheming, deceitful Jacob has been brought to the end of himself with nothing left except God himself uh, to, uh, to trust in. That's all he has left. And it is right here that God is ready to ready to change ready to change Jacob and he asks Jacob he asks Jacob what is what is your name which seems kind of strange verse 27 says and he said to him what is your name and he said Jacob now that seems pretty straightforward I mean did God not really know his name I mean he's been with him all this time you know of course he he you you know as well as I do that he doesn't ask his name because God doesn't know his name Jacob Jacob has been Jacob has been defeated completely and now you have the victor demanding to hear Jacob's name it's a in some cultures there's a subordinate a subordinate uh, is showing uh, submission when he gives his when he gives his name or people have you know they're they're different uh, traditional uh, viewpoints about the name and, and the deity and all those kind of things but do you remember why Jacob was called Jacob at his birth I mean Jacob meant heel grabber when Esau first came out Jacob's Jacob's hand came out he grabbed his heel uh, 
Uh, his name came to mean much more than that. Jacob meant supplanter or deceiver. You remember when Jacob stole the blessing from Esau, Esau said in Genesis 27, uh, verse 36, he said, uh, is he not rightly named Jacob for he has cheated me these two times. So Jacob's very name and identity was, was, was identified with the sinner that he was. God asks, what is your name? Not because he doesn't know his identity. This is the opportunity for Jacob to admit that he is truly a deceiver. He's truly a sinner. Remember that Jacob, Jacob's been afraid and worried because Esau's coming. And, and you know, all he can think about is that he wronged Esau and the punishment that's coming for him at Esau's hand. That's all he can think of. But but now he's not just admitting that he has sinned against Esau. He has he's come to the point that he is now before God recognizing that he is a sinner by nature. He is Jacob. He is the deceiver. I mean, what a picture of the sinner realizing his lost condition. I, I, can, imagine, I can imagine Jacob uh, crying out his name with tears and repentance, falling to the ground. What is your name? My name is Jacob. He finally recognizes that, that he's not good. Uh, I mean, yes, he's been born into a family that's been blessed by God. Yes, he he himself has received the promise of God. But make no mistake, Jacob, you haven't earned any of it. You aren't good or special in and of yourself. There is there is absolutely no room for pride or hubris uh, at all. Uh, what is your name? Who are you? I am I am Jacob. I am I am a sinner, and it is it's right here where the wretched sinner, hopelessly lost and unable to help himself, clinging to the mercy of God, finds that God is gracious and loving. Yes, yes, Jacob, you are a sinner. You are a deceiver. But you are that no longer. In verse 28, he says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He is given, of course, a new name. He's no longer Jacob. Now he is Israel. Now Israel, the word can either mean, it can either mean strives with God or fights with God, or it can mean God fights or God strives. And and we're, we're told the reason for this new name. It is because he says Jacob has striven with God. He has fought with God and men and prevailed. Now this is important. Uh, because the name Israel would forever mark the people of God. I mean, even today, all those who are in Jesus Christ are called the Israel of God by Paul in the New Testament. So what is this pointing to? The explanation is, of course, in the text itself. It, it says that the reason for the name, the reason for the name Israel is because Jacob has fought with God and men and prevailed. Now, that's a strange explanation in and of itself. I mean, how did Jacob prevail? Just looking back over the conflict, what do you see? You see, you know, Jacob indeed received the blessing. And in a sense, he was victorious because, you know, his identity was changed and he did receive the blessing straight from the hand of God. Uh, he ceased to be the heel grabber in the eyes of God, became Israel because he prevailed. But how did he prevail? He prevailed by absolute and complete surrender. He most certainly wasn't victorious because of his own strength. He didn't win the match by fighting and struggling. 
In fact, God, in a sense, just played along with Jacob throughout the night. I mean, he could have decimated his hip at any time, but didn't. Jacob didn't prevail by any other means than that he recognized his inability and his wickedness, and he clung to God in his weakness, trusting in God's mercy alone, trusting that God would bring blessing to him. I mean, that's a picture of salvation in every age. For uh, I mean, for all time, the very name of this people, Israel, would cause them to remember the wrestling match of their forefather. I mean, forever, just by the name Israel, every time you see it in Scripture, you know, the, the God of Israel, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, when you see the word Israel, when you see the name, it should remind you that the blessing was gained through surrender by clinging to the mercy of, of God. It was gained by their forefather who won the victory with God by admitting his sinfulness and clinging to God alone for mercy. And that is still how the blessing is gained today. That's how we're born again today, by clinging by grace through faith to the mercy of God that's given in Jesus Christ. The part about, the part about striving with men, it says that he stri- has striven with God and men and prevailed. Uh, it's caused a lot of debate, and, and many people have differing ideas about what it means. I'm not going to go into uh, all the different theories, um, but I tend to agree with those who see it as understanding that if God be for you, then there is no man who can be against you. Remember remember what has happened and what is about to happen. Remember the overall context. Laban is, has been defeated by God's power. He could not stand against Jacob, not for the 20 years that he tried to cheat him, not when he came on the battlefield to kill him. He could not stand against Jacob because of God. And now Jacob is heading home. Esau is coming to kill him, or you know, so Jacob thinks. And so we're, we're, just to let the cat out of the bag a little bit, we're going to see God move in that as well. And so when God is for Jacob, God is blessed Jacob, God has given him the promise, then there is no one that can stand against him. There's no one that can derail God's plan or uproot God's promise. And so it is true that Jacob or Israel has truly striven with God and man and prevailed. He prevailed with God by submitting and by clinging to God for mercy. He prevailed against man because he is victorious in God and bearer of the promise. But just to make sure we understand that Jacob's prevailing was not of his own doing. Uh, let's read verse 29 and 30, and we'll, we'll come to an end right here. It says, Then Jacob asked, or all this has been done, Jacob asked as the day is breaking, Please tell me your name. And God says, Why do you ask my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, explaining, Certainly I have seen God face to face and have survived. So Jacob, you know, has given his name, and of course he has been renamed by God. And now Jacob, in in almost a sense of, uh, you know, it, it seems like a, a, a quid pro quo, or just, you know, uh, you know, I gave you mine, now you're going to give me yours. But you understand, God is the victor here. God doesn't submit to Jacob, and so God doesn't give Jacob his name. He doesn't give. He says, why do you ask my name? It's like, you know, you you are the defeated foe here. You are not the victor in this match. You don't you don't get my name. But then in the very next breath, it says, then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob indeed was the recipient of 
the blessing. He was the recipient of uh, the blessing that he had fought so so strenuously throughout his life for. And so he recognizes who this is. And he called the name of the place Peniel, which means the face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He has met God face to face. Understand this, that there will come a day in everyone's life, every single person, every human being on the face of the planet that ever lived and ever will live, that you will you will come to God face to face. You'll either come to him as father through his son, Jesus Christ, or you will come to him as judge and he will he will judge in perfect righteousness. And so understand that he has he has seen God face to face and he has survived. He's been delivered from it as the word delivered. He's been saved, delivered not because he is so strong, not because he is so good, not because he is a conqueror in this in this match, in this meeting, in this experience with God, he was nothing more than a rag doll when it was over, unable to walk, unable to function, unable to fight, unable to continue. And it was simply by submission. It was simply by clinging in faith to God that he would give the blessing that Jacob has prevailed. He has met God. And it is that humility, that coming to the end of himself and trusting alone in the mercy and the power of God that has caused him to be delivered. It's the same, the same today. Verse 31 says, the sun rose up upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Notice you cannot have an encounter with God and not be forever changed. This was not just, this was a real, uh, this was a real wrestling match. This was a real encounter and it left a real scar on Jacob when he tried to struggle with God, when he tried to get victory in his own strength, it left him hobbled. He limped because of his hip. And then it shows us verse 32. There's a lot of debate about verse 32 and why it's there. It says, Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of on the sinew of the thigh. Now, there are uh, <laughs> there are a lot of, uh, of views as to, I mean, the verse is pretty straightforward. It pretty much tells you, you know, it's not hard to understand uh, at all. Uh, but why it's there is is hotly debated. Um, so we, not exactly sure if this is the muscle, the tendon, uh, uh, you know, to those things. Uh, but Israel didn't eat the part of uh, of the hind quarter, uh, and it it. You know, it's it's not enshrined in the Mosaic law or anything like that. Uh, it, it's mentioned in the Talmud in some places like that. But the point the point that is being made here is that this uh, wrestling match, this event, uh, is not only commemorated in the name of of Jacob, but it's is also commemorated in the practice of uh, uh, of the people of Israel. You know, for for all time, for the the rest of the time, they uh they're exceptional milestones in in not only Jacob's life, but but also the people Israel. And as a memorial of it, you know, this 
encounter with God. Their custom was not to eat the tendon or the muscle that was attached to the to the socket of the hip. I think that what we need to see as we as we end this is that it's a perfect picture of, of salvation, of course, but it's also a perfect picture of the Christian life, the, the life lived in communion with God, that we are not in our own, in and of our own strength, uh, able to able to battle with God, able to struggle with God, able to continue in, in anything. We must continually cling to God. And when we try, when we attempt to do it our own way, when we attempt to uh, do it in our own strength, in our own power, uh, you, you will be humbled. If you are God's child, you will be humbled. He will not let his children go without discipline. And this is going to set up, um, it's going to set up who Jacob is for the rest of his life and who the people of God are going to be, both for the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. Remember that the church is called Israel in the New Testament. Those who are in Christ is called Israel in the New Testament. And so this is not a picture of just some Old Testament people that, you know, it's good to learn the history about. This is this is our history. This is our forefather who has who has striven with God and prevailed and he has shown us God has shown us through these scriptures what it means to what it means to have victory in God it's through submission it's through uh, humility and repentance and it's through faith in the mercy of God